Thank you, Brad and Esther and Amber and Kentrell. It was uh, Sylacauga, Alabama, November 30th, 1954. Mrs. Hewlett Hodges had had lunch and um, she laid down on the couch to take a nap. Again, it was November 30th. She had a cold. No, uh, Thanksgiving had worn her out. So she laid down to take a nap and had barely dozed off when there was a terrible racket. And she felt a pain on her left side, her left arm and the left side of her hip. Her eyelids, eyelids sprung open from her nap. And there was a hole in the ceiling all the, clear through to the roof. She could see the sky above her. And to her right, or on the floor, I don't know if it was her, to her right or to her left, but on the floor uh, next to the couch was a big black rock. It turns out that uh, Mrs. Hewlett Hodges is the only one documented to have been hit by a meteorite, a fragment that rock, six, nine pounds and six inches in diameter, was the, a fragment of a meteorite. Well, it made a big racket, a big boom, and so the neighbors heard that. They came running. They called the police. Soon there was a big crowd at Mrs. Hodge's house. They called, there was a geologist in town, Mr. Swindle. Good thing he wasn't a banker. He was in town. Mr. Swindle came and he was doing, he was just in town doing a water survey. He came though to examine the rock. Yes, it's a meteorite, he said, a sulfite meteorite. I keep looking down at John Christie. He's our state climatologist. I confirmed all this with Dr. Christie. Somebody called the Air Force. It came from the air after all, so the Air Force came and took the rock to Maxwell Air Force Base, which was all well and good until Mr. Hodges showed up from work and there was a crowd at his house and the rock had fallen from outer space into his house and he wanted his rock back. Mainly because people already had begun, the news was circulating, people already were calling, uh, offering big money for this fragment of a meteorite. They eventually, by the way, put it, uh, had it put into the um, Museum of Natural Science at the University of Alabama. It's on display there. You can at least see pictures of it. I, I may get back to why it's there in just a moment if I remember. <clears throat> Mrs. Hodges is minding her own business, taking a nap on the couch when from outer space fly, comes a a meteorite. She said, I wish it had fallen a mile down the road and not hit me or anybody. Sometimes you're just minding your own business when uh, out of nowhere comes a crisis or a disappointment or surprising bad news. It is inevitable. Jesus spoke, Kentrell read those words a moment ago, he, he spoke not of meteorites, but of storms, of inevitable storms. And, and some of you were probably singing in your minds as he was reading, the rains came down and the floods came up. 
And Jesus said, if you build your house on sand, it, it's not going to stand. It will crumble when the, when, when the inevitable tempests come. But if you build your foundation on a rock, then it will withstand even the storms. Storms are uh, inevitable. Sometimes they blow up suddenly, like Mrs. Hodges lying there on the couch, and out of nowhere comes a meteorite, like Jesus and his disciples on the Sea of Galilee on that boat when the storm, the Bible says, blew up suddenly. Sometimes you don't see it coming. The doorbell rings in the middle of the night. You go to the door and there's a policeman standing there. Sometimes storms blow up suddenly. Sometimes you don't, uh, you don't see the storms coming. You go to a meeting with your boss. It's just a typical weekly meeting. The boss says, um, I'm so sorry, but this coronavirus has killed our business and I'm going to have to let you go. Sometimes the storms blow in suddenly. But sometimes they roll in. They, they approach us slowly. You can see it building and you can see the storm on the way. You can see the the dark clouds gathering in the distance. You can see the lightning in the distance. And sometimes you can see the wall of rain literally headed right towards you. A husband is uh, slowly less attentive. His touches gradually less tender. Little by little, he spends more and more time away from home. And so his wife is devastated, but not completely shocked when she finds out that he's leaving. You feel a, a discomfort in your body, a, a familiar discomfort. You try to ignore it, but you can't. You, you begin to lose energy and appetite, and you postpone a visit to the doctor because you're afraid of what the doctor will say. And when you get there, in fact, um, you saw it coming. It, the illness has returned with a vengeance. Sometimes winds blow, storms blow in. All of a sudden, sometimes they build in the distance and you can watch them headed your way. Sometimes storms blow into people who, who created their own storms. Sometimes it's to, into the lives of people who are innocent. You know, some, some people create their own storms. That, you know, the, the results of bad choices, poor behavior. Some people build their own storms. In fact, there's a saying, if you build your own storm, don't get mad if you get stuck in the rain. Some people build their own storms. Jesus said, what you sow, you will reap. Hosea 8, 7 reads, they sow the wind, they reap the whirlwind. Numbers 32, 23, be sure your sin will find you out. Sometimes we build our own storms. The storms that, that blow are the result of our own decisions. But sometimes storms blow into the lives of people who are as innocent as human beings can be. Bad things, you know, happen to good people. Sometimes storms are the result of our own choices. We, we stir up our own storms. Sometimes they blow into the lives of innocent people. By the way, there was an argument over that meteorite that fell into Mrs. Hodges' house. Mr. and Mrs. Hodges said that meteorite belongs to us. After all, it fell into our house, except it wasn't exactly their house. They were renting the house from Mrs. Guy, G-U-Y. Mrs. Guy said, because I own the house, and it fell into the house that I owned, it's mine. A big legal battle ensued, which is why they eventually just gave it to the uh, museum at the University of Alabama. 
Mrs. Hodges said in her argument for it belonging to them, she said, God intended that meteorite for me. After all, it hit me, she said. What's well, an interesting argument, but did God really intend, whether for blessing or curse, did God really intend for that meteorite to, to strike um, Mrs. Hodges? I, I don't know the ways of the Lord, but is it possible, I think it is possible, that maybe that's just a natural result of the ways of the universe. Jesus said the rains fall on the just and the unjust. And he asked his disciples once about the tower that had fallen in Siloam. He said, do you remember that tower that fell in Siloam? Yes, we said. Did it fall only on sinners? He asked them, no. Sometimes rains fall and towers fall and meteorites fall. Sometimes we bring on the storms ourselves. Sometimes storms just flow into lives of people who are as innocent as human beings can be. So sometimes they're immediate. Sometimes they build in the distance. We see them coming. Sometimes they blow into lives of people who've built their own storms. Sometimes we're as innocent as we can be. But but there is the inevitability of storms. However they come or to whomever they come, into all our lives will blow the storms. Storms are inevitable, but we can get ready uh, for the storms. We have the opportunity now before the storms blow to get ready. The truth is, though, that lots of us don't do the work of preparing for storms. We, we tend to be surface people. We tend to be rather superficial people. We, we work on, you know, how people perceive us or what we have. We, we don't do a lot of soul work. That's hard work. And so our roots are fairly uh, shallow and... Um, Quite frankly, maybe for some of us, our faith rather superficial. So when the storms blow, we may be in big trouble. We can, though, get ready for the storms. There, is, there are certain ingredients to a good foundation. Now, I, I think that the, the, the four ingredients that go into a slab, if you're going to build a slab for a foundation, you know, a, 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 a concrete slab, you'd have, need to have cement and rocks and water and sand, I think. But there are three ingredients to a good soul foundation. Prayer, Scripture, and community. Let's talk about those. Prayer. God invites us to let our requests be made known to Him. Tell me what you want, He says to us. That doesn't mean He's going to give us the keys to the car. He, though, do, he does, though, give us an opportunity to, to make requests of Him. That's part of prayer. But that's not, that's not all of prayer. Prayer also is listening. It is getting in tune with God. I learned something this week about our orchestra. When they meet, they get in tune with the oboe. I asked Billy Orton about that. He offered to give me a lengthy explanation. I declined. I said, no, I just want to know that we get in. I thought they got tuned to the first violin, but it's the oboe. Now, they, she will get in tune with the piano or the organ if they're going to play with the piano or the organ, but other instruments look to the oboe to get in tune. Prayer is, part of prayer is getting in tune with our Creator. So as much as is humanly possible, our hearts beat with His heart. Our thoughts are His thoughts as much as is possible, and that our volition, our will is the same as what He wants for us. Getting into President Nixon was, remember Richard Nixon? He was president in the early 1970s. He was a Quaker. 
He once asked his grandmother, why do Quakers pray silently? She said, the purpose of prayer is not to tell God what thee wants, but to find out from God what he wants from thee. So if you want to get ready for the inevitable storm, then then get comfortable in your relationship with your, your Creator. You better develop a good, intimate, comfortable relationship with Him in preparation for the storm because it is coming. So the first ingredient is of a good foundation is prayer. The second is Scripture, so that when we read the Bible, when we, when we love and study the Bible, it, it becomes part of us. It's embedded into our hearts and our minds, and it becomes part of who we are, so that when we're in the school or the factory or the office and we are tempted, or when we're in the hospital and we're, when we're afraid, or when we're in the funeral home and we're devastated, then God brings back to us what we've learned from Scripture. But you've got to learn it. Tom Murphy, a friend of mine in Richmond, once said, God often gives me the very words I need from the Bible when I need them. But he said, God has never called to my mind verses that I didn't learn. You've got to learn it. It's got to be part of our preparation, our soul work. Prayer and Scripture and community. Community, I talked about connection last week. It's a commitment to this family or whatever your church family is. It is a commitment It's a financial commitment. It's a a commitment of service. I'm going to serve. It's a commitment to worship in normal days. It's a commitment to being part of in-person worship when, again, it's safe. Last week, I talked about John McCain as a prisoner of war, and, and he talked about how they wouldn't have made it without each other. There was the encouragement and the accountability that came from from their connection. You can get ready for the storm. You really can. And the three good ingredients of a, or, or ingredients of a good foundation are prayer and scripture and community. You can get ready for the, the inevitable storm. A Methodist pastor told about a, a farmer, a, an, a, an English farmer, who needed a farmhand. He needed someone to help on the farm. And so he went down to the village square. That's where people came when they wanted work. And it's where people went to find workers. So he went to the village square. He met a young man who seemed very capable. He asked him about his credentials. What's what's your experience? What are your skills? And the young man said only, I can always sleep on a stormy night. But, But the farmer asked more. Tell me more about what you can do and what you've done. I can always sleep is all he would say. I can always sleep on a stormy night. Well, he seemed so capable, the farmer hired him despite this rather unusual answer. And so they they went back to the farm. The farmhand worked for weeks until one night in the middle of the night, a terrible storm blew in with sheets of rain and gusts of wind attacking the farm. The farmer awakened in the middle of the night to the storm, ran down to the room where the farmhand was, found the farmhand fast asleep. The farmer was so upset with the apathy and the, the laziness of this farmhand who would sleep in the middle of a storm. He got so upset, he decided to go check on things himself. He battled his way across the farmyard to the barn, and he got in the barn. He found that everything was in order. The livestock were safe in the stalls. The chickens were cozy in their coops. The Ten sheets on the roof weren't flapping. The roof wasn't leaking. The barn doors weren't slamming. Everything was in order. He 
made his way back to the house, laid down in the bed, and when he laid down, he remembered meeting the farmhand at the village square who said, I can always sleep on a stormy night. If you do the prep, if you do the work, then you don't have to fear the storms. The storms are inevitable, and if, if, you're, if your foundation is shaky, if you haven't done the soul work, some of us may not fare well when the storms blow, but you, you can get ready. Now, let me pivot, pivot. I'm headed toward the end, but I want to pivot just a moment to talk about a different kind of preparation. I've been talking about getting ready for those, you know, emotional or psychological or personal or familial or financial storms that inevitably, inevitably blow in. But let me talk about a different kind of preparation for a moment. I grew up, as some of you did, in a, a church where we had fire and brimstone preachers. I bet some of you all did too. They always seemed mad when they were preaching. And, and, um, and the evangelists were even madder, it seemed, when they would come through. And, um, you know, a lot of, a lot of, I grew up with that fire and brimstone, and, and, the, and the, um, it seems like every revival we had, there'd be stories of somebody who almost made a decision to follow Jesus, who walked right up to the edge of a decision to follow Jesus, and then said, no, I'll wait and do it tomorrow. And then they died before the next day came. Or someone decided, made a dramatic decision to follow Jesus. At the 11th hour, they decided to follow Jesus, and then they got killed before the next day. They got in just under the wire. I, I just remember there being a lot of stories about that. And every evangelist had a chart at, at our church, it seemed, about the, the second coming, and, and the message was clear. Jesus could come tonight. You better get saved tonight. You might not make it to tomorrow. You better get saved tonight. And we would sing that, that song that some of you grew up singing, that invitation hymn, Oh, why not tonight? Tomorrow's sun may never rise. And there's a great second line to that, too. Tomorrow's sun may never rise to bless thy long deluded sight. You're not seeing clearly. This is the time, oh, then be wise, be saved, oh, tonight. That's what we would sing. But we're too sophisticated now. Was there, was there some fear-mongering in, in that? It was maybe some emotional manipulation? Perhaps so. But at least we recognized the fragile, fleeting nature of life. There was no pretending. I remember as a kid knowing that I'd better get ready because I'm not going to be here forever. I fear that our sophistication has robbed us of a sense of urgency. <clears throat> because life's greatest challenge is not the financial or familial or emotional or financial or psychological storm that's coming, life's greatest challenge is the fact that life don't last forever. And one day Jesus will come. And one day we'll, we will breathe our last if He doesn't come first. So I wonder if you're prepared for the tempest or for your last breath. You know, we, um, we put together a, a program 
for uh, 8.15 and, and for the TV, where we, we go back into the archives and we bring music from Sunday's past. And we put together those, that music thematically so that we hope it will, you know, it will fit. And, and so this morning, you're, you're not going to see it. I, I wish we were, but those who are watching TV this morning, at the end of this message, are going to hear the choir sing, and I almost cried listening to it last night. Billy's wife, Jane, is the soloist. And they sing an old song kind of like, um, Why Not Tonight? They sing, Time now is fleeting. The moments are passing. Passing for you and for me. Shadows are gathering. Deathbeds are coming. Coming for you and for me. Come home. Come home, you who are weary, come home earnestly. Tenderly Jesus is calling, calling, O sinner, come home. After our meditation, our musical meditation, and our closing prayer by Sherry, I'm going to wait down front to see if you want to talk about something, uh, about being a member of our church, preparing for the storm, or what it means to know Jesus.